Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This is me, Russell. I spoke with David Bocelli this week. David's an expert in areas of trauma, intervention and conflict resolution. He's the creator of the tension and trauma releasing exercises which are designed to help the release of deep tension created in the body during a traumatic experience or through chronic stress. For more information on his work, go to traumaprevention.com. How are you coping with your trauma, Jenny? I don't know. How are you coping with the trauma you um, inflict on the people that know you? I don't you? know. I'm nice, aren't I? You do inflict a lot of trauma. Do I? <sighs> quite a lot, Jen. My yeah, quite a lot. Banter decanter. You feeling all right? From the vaccine? Just in general, Jen. No. Just in general, Jen. No. Just in you're not all right. No, I'm never okay. What do you want? You're not depressed. I don't are you? want anything. That's the problem. Isn't why don't you go on MDMA or psilocybin or one uh, of them? Yeah, give, why don't you give me some? I'm not a drug dealer. <laughs> I'm eighteen and a half I wouldn't half take years. MDMA. You wouldn't take that. I'm uh, not as a microdose. I take the mi psilocybin. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm not allowed, sadly. I so I take the lot, and that's partly the problem. It's that, but, but MDMA has a. Like a calm down effect. When you're must microdosing be, it, it, it's probably not great. But we just it? did a YouTube video saying how it makes things better. Just, but when you come off it, do you feel a bit... Funny? No, you only do three doses, apparently, and Ever? 18 therapy sessions. Oh, God. Wait. Why are you against the therapy uh, sessions? Wait. Three doses of normal MDMA. I don't know, Jen. <laughs> you just did a video on it. Yeah, but I didn't look into how much milligrams. <laughs> so is it like what you'd take if you went out? It looked like it was a bit like that, yeah. Oh, it's not going to work. Listen, don't put those therapies. <laughs> How dare you? These are scientists, scientists in a lab, men and women with ethics and morals. Not like you, a junkie walking up and down a pebble beach in your little, scrambling your little orange toes across the gravel. No. Scampering into the water, sh shuddering and a shivering. No. Have you been I'll in go. the water? It hasn't been warm enough. It's I went in, been coward. I went in fresh water yesterday. Wait, I was working yesterday. <laughs> well, I went in cold water yesterday. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I win the cut that round. You have to acknowledge that. Chris and Lester says, this is a listener shout out. Yellow banana, yellow banana. Listener shout outs. David Bocelli will be coming up to talk to us about trauma and how to relieve ourselves of trauma. But meanwhile, in listener shout outs, Chris and Lester go, hello, Russell. And your wonderful team. Special thanks to the continued hard work of Jen, who appears to have more resilience to your constant jovial jibs and jabs than Pickford. I've been as... No, she's... she's he not. said jovial. <laughs> <laughs> That's a literary... Yeah, these are jovial jibs and jabs, aren't they? They're loving. These are the jibs and jabs the of love. jovial jibs and jabs. Jovial jibs and jabs, <laughs> aren't they? You give me some jovial jibs and jabs, Do don't I? you? Yeah, I think so. You're always jib-jabbing. <laughs> I have been on a serious binge listener to your podcast, starting my a somewhat solace job. I turned to under the skin, and I'm now brainwashed, subconsciously listening to your podcast while I work away. Thank you, Chris. Well done, mate. Thank you for your team for evoking such thoughts and presenting new and interesting concepts. Really, really good work. Long-time listener and fan. Chris, thanks, Chris. I love you. Bruce says, Russell is a great interviewer and brings a lot of depth to his discussions. The Jordan Peterson interview was fantastic. Keep up the good work. Well, I'm really flattered and grateful to you all. And I really want you to listen to it above the noise and learn to meditate. Learn to meditate. Meditate each week with me. 
on above the noise. Jordan Brady, speaking about that very project, said, I just started in episodes one and two, calmed my monkey brain down and took me to a happy place with my long deceased father. We lay by the record console and he guided me to feel the blood in my big toe, then up the legs, body to heart and mind. It's been 25 years plus since I had that pleasant guided meditation. Only this time with Russell. Decided, Russell's decidedly different draw. Love it. I'm so calm and happy right now. And that's from Jordan Brady, baby. I'm on tour. 20 dates. <laughs> south of the UK, Jen. Yeah, everyone thinks you don't like the North. I love the North. I'm going to do that later. <laughs> Am I? Nah. All right. <laughs> Sign up for my mailing list on russellbrand.com and check out all the YouTube videos. Now let's get into this episode with Dr. David Pacelli. He can remove trauma using advanced techniques, which I demonstrate. Jen, are we going to leave the bit in where I... Because you were, weren't you filming it? I was laying down. Yeah, was it, it was sort of a bit groin centric? It was a bit weird. And Why? Because it, it was groin centric. Groin centric. And also, you had the laptop on your, on, a, on your lap, and then I was holding it in front of you. Did me I look groin. a bit. It's like I was a midwife. And I was giving birth to what? A podcast? Trauma. Ooh, <laughs> what a horrible birth. I was giving birth to sweet lady trauma. Yeah. What about that, Jen? Well, should we include that? It might be. I'll listen to and. People like sometimes we say if you listen if I'm listening to a podcast in a car and it goes into a bit like that I'm like what the f- what's yeah, this now? We can I don't want that bit. I want to just just give me entertain me yeah. distract me okay, help me. It. Life is hard, is it? Yeah. You're right when you fall asleep <laughs> at night. So that's the best bit. <laughs> <laughs> what about when you wake up in the morning? Worst um, bit? Yeah, when I'm happy I'm like ooh, what's this? Morning time. <laughs> But usually it's just, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible, really, Jen. All right. So let's listen to Dr. David Bocelli. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. David, thank you very much for joining me on Under the Skin and being patient and already demonstrating that you literally practice what you preach by approaching me more as a patient than an interviewer. (laughs) It's a delight. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks for making time for us and thank you. Um, So I know that you're... um, treatment model is predicated on the release of trauma my own background is um you know or, or my own i would say sort of world view is predicated on the principles of recovery a kind of 12-step model but i've spoken quite extensively with sort of like public high public profile clinicians like you know jordan peterson who's obviously has a sort of a strong jungian and academic influence but also uh, specifically Gabor Mate who talks a lot about trauma in his sort of work as a you know as a, as a doctor as a physician and I, I'm very interested in what you have to say about trauma because I'm realizing in my own therapy the significance of trauma and how intransigent trapped trauma can be a real obstacle for progress even in people that have had a lot of therapy Perhaps that's something you can explain to us about how your model works and the specificity of trauma in uh, in our personal exploration and growth. Well, yeah, 
Okay, I, I want to reframe a little bit of that to, to give a broader perspective, because what I do is I work from everything from mild stress to severe trauma. So it's on a continuum. A stressor, if you have it for 18 years of your life growing up as in a family where there might have been an alcoholic parent or something like that, ends up producing post-trauma types of reactions. So we're looking at this continuum of stress and anxiety and tension all the way up to trauma. I'm convinced that the human species, us, we are already genetically designed and know that we're going to experience trauma. I think we're genetically encoded to know we're going to experience it. We know how to endure it, survive it. And more important to your point, I think we actually evolve from it. We don't evolve because we don't have traumas. We evolve because we do have them. And so for me, that's a, a shift. When you're talking about trauma recovery, you're talking about a shift from this disillusionment of life, this experience that's hard and difficult, and the shift in post-traumatic growth moves towards evolution. So you go from disillusion to evolution. I'm convinced we know how to do that. It's not pleasant. We don't want to do it. But we are actually genetically designed to make that transition. And that that's part of being human on this planet. Even in most rudimentary evolutionary discourse, it's accepted that stress is a sort of primary evolutionary factor, i.e. that language may have evolved out of necessary stresses pressures external environmental pressures create or uh, you know along with natural mutation cr cr create the opportunity for adaptation and and is it so you're saying that trauma could be regarded as an evolutionary agent yeah i believe so because if we look at the history of humanity we have all these traumatized moments global traumatized moments even one like we're experiencing now with covid but evolution has demonstrated that somehow we learned from it we grew we actually became stronger as a result of it as much as i hate to say that i'd prefer we had a world without stress or trauma but it seems to be the nature of our being but more importantly and more interesting for me is we seem to be genetically encoded to know that, even though we may cognitively not like that. Why then, if we are evolved to experience trauma, if trauma is a fact of life, and of course, like, you know, we should probably be explicit that there is, you know, a spectrum of trauma and a framework of trauma. And I know that your personal work takes you into fields that we might classify as extreme trauma like combat veterans natural disasters and you know like as you said there's a sort of a, a spectrum of trauma and you've operated at all levels of it so if we are evolved to experience trauma then why is it that the consequences of trauma are so palpably negative in many cases well see this is where i think this concept needs to be sort of reframed We, we are genetically designed to evolve or uh, get through trauma, but I'm not sure that we're using all that's um, uh, available to us in our body. And that's where this technique that I'm teaching uh, fits in. See, when we get nervous or anxious, 
what happens is our nervous system goes very, very high. But when it gets to a certain height, the body actually genetically begins to tremor itself. And it tremors itself so it can calm down the nervous system. And if we knew how to allow our nervous system to adjust itself and its own rhythm, we would actually find it easier to go through difficult life experiences because as our nervous system elevates, we would know how to uh, downregulate it very quickly as well. And so I think we're not using all of the resources that are available to us in the, in the human condition or the human organism that actually does help make this transition a little easier. Having said that, I don't ever want to say that trauma is easy because I've been traumatized many times in my life and it's painful and difficult. But through that trauma process, there seems to be, the research is currently demonstrating, what's called post-traumatic growth, that something happens as a transition point where the trauma which had been in our lives damaging, there's a transition and now the experience of that trauma and the growth from it somehow provides us with a new strength, a, a, a new discourse within ourselves where we actually feel more stronger, more powerful and more resilient. I suppose, David, that even the most rudimentary anatomical models suggest that trauma increases, like, for example, using weights is to inflict modest, manageable trauma on the muscles and the muscles respond to that trauma by growing if the, you know, the nutritional and environmental mm -hmm. factors are expedient. There's a few things I want to ask you, obviously. One is, what is the data that suggests that we are genetically evolved to incorporate and grow from trauma? What is that data? And um, secondly, I mean, I guess where we're ultimately going to get is what are these techniques and how are they practiced? But there actually was a bit of a side note, because I know you're going to explain that genetic thing to me in a second, is that it, trauma could be understood to be most likely, I suppose, some kind of external agent that interrupts the teleology of a of an object, which suggests a number of things. It suggests that there is an optimum experience of being human. Now, a lot of people these days would critique even that fact. Like, you know, like, so if you accept the fact of trauma, that means you also accept the fact that there is an optimal way for the human's biological system to operate. That a trauma is an interruption, a psychological trauma, a, some kind of violence, that it's it impedes the optimal flowering. Now, I wouldn't personally have a problem with that. That's my understanding of recovery is based on the rather adorable and trite expression that we recover the person we were intended to be, that we're trying to realize ourselves. We're trying to actualize ourselves. Trauma occurs in childhood. We turn to drink or drugs or sex or whatever it is in order to medicate and manage this traumatic experience. I recognize my own long here, history and experience of addiction has been my own clumsy attempts to manage and deal with trauma and potentially the conditions of a culture that are not designed to you know, nourish human beings, really. There's sort of the big ideological things at stake. But if we just sort of focus on that, so it's like there is an optimal state for a human being. There is genetic evidence that we can grow from trauma. And then I suppose we could start moving into some of the practices in which you are an, an expert and an authority. 
Yeah, okay. I can't tell you the data that says we're genetically encoded um, to, to evolve from trauma. The most recent research, which is about post-traumatic growth, is demonstrating that somehow our humanness, our, our condition, our understanding of ourselves somehow takes on a change when we're in the midst of the trauma and then the post-trauma reaction and the growth process. And the evidence suggests that people return at least back to their baseline after traumatic events. Some people feel stronger in some ways. And interestingly enough, and I don't want to go into it, other people explain, well, they feel like they've had some sort of um, experience, which they call spiritual, because I don't think they have another word in science for that. But it's an experience that they um, experience their humanity at a greater depth than they ever had before. And so that's the evidence that's suggesting there may be a growth process in, in the process of recovering from trauma. Now, and the data is there in the sense that they're now gathering this. Does it make us stronger as a human species? Well, you know, we grow through different um, virus strains throughout humanity. We've learned how to create um, different medical substances to help us grow through these things and to live longer, etc. So that's where I sort of put this, there may be some potential growth process um, post-trauma and that we're designed to know that and do that. <clears throat> now, how we do that, how do we inhabit our bodies becomes the question, because you're right, a trauma generally is something from the outside, but I could sit and be very, at least stressed, let's say that much, stressed out by watching news that's disturbing me every day. So the news is out there, but if I turn it off, I could still think about it in my mind. I could still create my own internal anxiety. I could be afraid that my boss is going to yell at me tomorrow, and I could live today in a full day of stress, worrying about that, and then I get to my boss the next day, and she doesn't yell at me. So we actually can produce this behavior in ourselves. It's not just external as well. And so there's something about this movement or this communication, if you will, between me as an individual and my aliveness and my relationship with whatever I experience on this planet. Yes. And even in the example of the projected or imagined negative encounter with uh, uh, an other, it's still envisaged as sort of separate from the experiencer, separate from the experiencer. It's still experienced as a a stimulant, an interruption of a kind of, um, what do I want to say, a kind of an inner serenity. Homeostasis. Homeostasis, yeah, yeah that is what I want to say. Thank you. Um, okay, so thank you. Um, so this is, let's accept it then, it, it's true. Uh, my recent experience is suggesting it's held in the body, that like, you know, that my trauma is not entirely c cerebral, even though it's often attached to thought. 
you know, I've done a, a lot of therapy. You'll be astonished to learn. And like much of it has been like that, um, you know, I really feel like I hold in my stomach and my abdomen. I feel like wounded. I feel like, you know, like that I carry mm-hmm. fear there and anxiety there when it when I when I stimulate it much in the manner you've described by projecting and fantasizing about negative events. I feel this area light up. You know what? What you know? Someone's when I talk to uh, someone like you, not to uh, obviously you're, you're a unique person, but what I mean by that is someone that has solutions that is offering solutions. I sort of automatically think that will not work. I automatically think how can, like this is so integral to me, my suffering, my wound. Like you know, I can't imagine being liberated from it. All right, so. Two things here. One, you have to let me take you through a session one day. We'll see if we can dispel that. Um, what I believe is that we, for many reasons in our history, have separated our brain from our bodies. And we, we do things cognitively, and we don't recognize that there's a somatic place to that. Then sometimes you do something somatically, and we don't think there's a cognitive place. But I, I, instead of using body-mind, because I don't think that's a solution um, in, in terms of vocabulary, I talk about the human organism. The human organism. There's no such thing as a separation between what's going on in us cognitively in our brain and what's happening to us somatically in our bodies. Now, that's to our advantage, though, as a species, because the nervous system now is a dual pathway. I could say something to you that makes you feel calm and relaxed. And so then all of a sudden you take a deep breath and your belly lets go a little bit. Or I could do something to your body that causes it to relax and then your brain has a reaction to that. So this dual pathway from top down and bottom up is what I'm sort of um, exploiting in this technique. Because I'm saying, look, I don't want to deal with your ego and I don't have to deal with your story. It's too complicated to get through that. It's too determined. It's not going to let go. But if I can find the places in your body, you told me where you have tension, but there are other places that the tension does not exist. And if I can get this tremor mechanism, which we activate in this technique, to find the pleasure pathways in your body that there isn't a lot of tension. I can actually, or your body will actually increase the pleasure areas. And as it does that, we're talking about tissue. So we're actually talking about tissue in the body moving. This isn't a thought. It's tissue actually moving and releasing itself. It will be connected to the tissue that's very tight and it will automatically begin to release that tissue. It has nothing to do with thought. It has to do with physiology. And so it has no a cognition attached to it. It's just like the human organism is going to start to pulsate again. All I'm doing is giving you its natural mechanism that I believe is designed to help restore pulsation because of these tight patterns that we hold in our bodies, some of them chronically. Do you think then that many people that suffer from physical ailments, bad back, and you know, a variety of things are holding tension that could be released without pharmaceutical or surgical intervention, but from the deployment of these techniques? And do you have examples of that? I have plenty. Yes. My answer is yes. Now, that's not all the time. Some people need operations and some people need chemicals for different reasons. 
But in general, I'm convinced that probably 80% of the tension and stressors that we hold in our body can be released, actually. So I really believe that's true. And the examples of that, it, go to my YouTube channel, because that's all I do. On my YouTube channel, I just put up people tremoring, so you see what it looks like, because it's different in every human body. And then at the end, they tell you what they feel that it did to them. And inevitably, it's like, oh, my stomach let go. My digestion has gotten better. My lower back pain is gone, or my neck pain is gone. But that's because the tremor mechanism is only working the physiology of the structure. That's all. So not doing any, it doesn't care whether this was a childhood trauma from 30 years ago or a recent uh, sports accident you were in. It doesn't care what your, your, why your pelvis hurts or why your lower back hurts. It's just tissue. It's going to release it because we're in a living organism that's designed to evolve and be as strong as it can be. So if the tissue connects to something that's inhibiting its best health, it will release it if it possibly can. So you say that it doesn't matter what thoughts you think or what's going on in your mind during this process. You could be thinking, I'm worthless, I hate my life, I can never be happy. And if you do this, if you undertake these these techniques that you call tremoring, then uh, you will experience relief. For sure. I mean, that's what most people do. They come to me with this trauma. I'm I'm worthless. I'm not good enough, etc. But that that could all be motivated by their thought processes and the ego, which is in the cortex. And if I can stimulate the body enough where they begin to feel pleasure and relaxation, that will by its nature start to change the way we think about ourselves. And a point in fact, my belief system is when you took that deep breath just before you spoke, something in your organism just shifted, see, from whatever I said, but something let go. There was a huge deep breath. You're either exasperated by me or you're, you're intrigued by me, one of the two, but something changed. David, you know perfectly well which it is. Don't flirt <laughs> on the podcast, David. <laughs> um, okay. What I'm interested in then is the origins of this technique, how you discovered it, and uh, the potential um, comparisons that could be made with religious ecstasis, you know, like a sort of in evangelicism or uh, some sort of shamanic Perfect. techniques where people go into like trances or whatever? Absolutely. Well, let's start with that one, that one because, and then I'll tell you how I discovered it and how I'm bringing what I think to be a very ancient experience in the human body into modern science. That's what I'm, I'm trying to do is help us make that transition. Yeah. Every traditional culture I ever went to, shaking is in that cultural tradition. It's either in their spirituality or their religion or some sort of ceremony, things like that. And it's all over the world, actually. So I found in many traditional cultures, what do they do? They sing, they dance, they chant. They may drink a substance that helps them lo loosen control. Isn't that interesting? Let go of control, let go of the tightness. And the result of that is some sort of autonomic response of the body to begin to tremor. Now, in these cultures in general, that tremoring could either mean one of two things. Either it's a good spirit coming into the body, 
or it's a bad spirit leaving the body. One of the two. Either way, it's attributed to something external because supposedly we're not in control of it. Okay? So that's how it comes from this ancient tradition. Now, here's how I discovered it. I was living in Sudan. I was in southern Sudan during the time of the war between the north and the south. And we were in a bomb shelter because there was some bombing going on. When we were in the bomb shelter, I had two children sitting on my lap, so one on each leg. And they were little boys. They were facing each other. So I put my hands on their backs to make them feel a little bit more secure. And in the bomb shelter, everybody's crowded in and stuff. But I could feel in my hands these two little children tremoring in terror. It was terror. And their body was shaking, almost shivering like it was cold. That's how what it felt like. And I was fascinated by that. And so I was feeling it in my hands and I looked around the room and all the little children were tremoring like that. But then when they got to be about 10, 11 or 12, you could see they were tremoring, but they were trying to inhibit the tremor. They're trying to stop it. And when I looked at the adults, none of them were tremoring. And that fascinated me because I thought, oh my God, these young children are showing us something more natural that as adults, we learn to control or grow out of. So when we were done and I came out of the bomb shelter, I asked one of the guys, I said, do you ever shake like the children shake? And he says, no, we don't shake like that because we don't want them to think we're afraid. And right there, it just rung a bell in me. It's like, we stop it. We found a way to inhibit it. And so we freeze the organism from doing it. And we lear we've learned how to grow out of being sensitive in our bodies. And it fascinated me because then I thought, it's like crying. That's the simple analogy. If you're two years old and you fall and you hurt your knee, you cry freely. You get a big charge of energy. The diaphragm pulsates. The body releases it by crying. When you're eight or nine years old, what happens? Don't cry. Big people don't cry. Boys don't cry. Girls don't cry. And so we learn how to actually stop the crying mechanism, which is one of the greatest pulsating mechanisms in the human body. And as adults, I have military soldiers come to me and say, I don't even know how to cry. I can't physically, my body can't cry. And they're right. Their diaphragm and chest cavity is so tight that it actually can't pulsate anymore. There you go. Thank you for that. Um, so what I find is that we train ourselves out of some of the most primitive natural responses in the human body because why? We negate them. We we stigmatize them. If you shake, you're weak, you're vulnerable, you're afraid, you're insecure. If I did that on this show, if I was afraid of you and my voice started quivering, immediately the audience would say, well, he's not very secure. He's frightened. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Mm. We have to destigmatize yes. the tremor mechanism. Yes. I like I like this, David. I, I, I was thinking there that um, you know about domination, and I was thinking about the sort of the motif of the dominator control, and I was thinking about that n notion that we sort of police ourselves, and this is often applied in a kind of an intellectual um, milieu, like we don't think the thoughts we're supposed to th we're not supposed to think in a kind of Orwellian way, um, but actually. 
I felt like the ego asserts control over the body. You're acculturated into believing you are this static individual as opposed to a, a sequence of interlocking systems that are in continual symbi symbiosis with their environment and with themselves. And you create the illusion of, yes, of a kind of inner hegemony and inner stasis. Mm -hmm. And... I'm a, I have young children, two-year-old and a four-year-old, and I think about how I communicate with them and how sometimes their emotions are inconvenient to me. And I also have a friend who talked about like his child being like showing potential signs of autism and stimming is the word they use, you know, and that mm -hmm. being sort of a stress release. And it's sort of they talk about it in auti in autistic vlogs and stuff as not being painful, but a sort of a, a sort of a release of stress and tension i was thinking about what you said about sort of uh, uh, emotional expression i was thinking about the idea of patriarchy and male dominator forces that are oppress systems of free-flowing emotion uh, of which crying and tremoring could simply be a couple of outlier symptoms of much deeper and defining tendencies and i was also thinking about where in my own life i assert that control trying to appeal to a kind of an idea of how I as a man must behave and how I as a man must be and what are the permitted areas where I can be flowing lucid flamboyant in, in like where it's permitted and where it isn't and I think there's a great deal of truth in what you're saying well I think you're exactly right we're trained be in control control your emotions what do we start doing to children when they start in their teenage years Take control of your life, be in control of everything. And you're right. We actually have this domination of ego that actually controls the very systems in our body that are endogenous. They should be able to pulsate naturally. We should every day cry if, if, that, if we get overstimulated and that's how the body chooses to release. We often laugh, which is nervous laughter, because that's an acceptable sort of discharge. But we should actually have this beautiful pulsation. The thing, Russell, that's really interesting to me is that I think living in this human organism is actually supposed to be a pleasurable experience for us. We're supposed to actually enjoy and feel it and be curious about it. Our consciousness is supposed to say, wow, this is interesting. And very few people ever experience pleasure living in their bodies. Yeah, it's a real shame, man. The, the kind of puritanism and then the the, the yeah. various forms of repression and control. Um, so you began to consider this method when you witnessed and experienced the natural response of those children when you were in a bomb shelter. How did you how did you begin to explore how this could be applied and how did you further underwrite that this could be a, 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 a sort of a, a, a method that could be extrapolated? Well, what I did after I realized what was going on, it took about five years for me to kind of pull all the pieces together. But when I realized, I also tremored too in terror at times. And when I first started experiencing it, I think I was living in Lebanon at the time. When I first started experiencing it, I thought, oh my God, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. Because that's what I was trained this kind of met. My nervous system was out of control. It was so severely overstimulated. I was going to have a breakdown. And I remember one night when they were shooting a lot of tear gas and um, 
I thought, I'm not going to live through the night. There were, there were bullets going past my house and all sorts of stuff. And I, but then I fell asleep. And I fell asleep tremoring. I remember that. I was shaking. And I thought, that's it. I'm going to die. And I fell asleep. And when I woke up the next morning, I felt great. And I couldn't put that together. I could not figure this out. I thought I was going to die. And I woke up the next day feeling, oh, I feel great. And I was still living in war. So that wasn't the issue. And then what I realized was, and this is interesting too, Russell. I like this. All I did was take something I had seen and experienced my whole life with the paradigm that was written for me around it. And I just twisted the paradigm and said, could this possibly be helping me? Is this not my nervous system burning itself out? But is it somehow regenerating me back towards health and out of the stressor? So when I came back to the States, I was reading a few books. And they were talking about how mammals tremor in the wild all the time. And you have videos of those on YouTube. Anybody could find them. Mammals tremor in the wild and they don't suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. And the, the, the reasoning behind it is, is that after the stressor is over, an animal will run away from whoever tried to eat it or whatever, go to the watering hole. It will tremor for about even up to half an hour. It will tremor. And all the stress is gone. Now, animals in the wild don't experience post-traumatic stress, but domesticated animals do, interestingly enough. We know what it's like for a dog in a thunderstorm. We watch that dog tremor. And that dog is actually discharging the high anxiety that the thunderstorm is creating for it. See, So we have this in nature. So when I saw that mammals do this, and this is natural, I thought, well, we're still mammals. And I experienced these mammal behaviors when I was in life or death threats. I experienced it and I thought, well, that has to be able to be uh, applicable to humans. So I studied a number of different body therapies to understand the body. Then I went and I got a, a license as a massage therapist because I needed to understand anatomy. So I was putting these pieces together and then figured out what's the easiest way to activate or access this tremor mechanism. And it seems to be in the adductor muscles, which are in the inner thigh of the body, and the psoas muscle. Because if you, if you know what it's like, when you're in threat, the body will automatically pull itself forward into what we call the fetal response, okay? That's why we have those gut-tight areas there. It's because it's still pulling us into a fetal response chronically when it doesn't need to. So what's the way out of the fetal response? Do the opposite. Actually just stretch the whole front of the torso. So if you, if you stretch the, the leg muscles that tightly hold what's called the psoas muscle, the psoas muscle connects the legs, goes through the pelvis and into the lower back. There's your pattern, your anatomical pattern for protecting against danger. So reverse that anatomical pattern and stretch it out. And I found within two minutes, actually, you can start to tremor. That's how easily accessible it is for the human body to, to get there. How do you stretch it out? Well, the easiest one is that you lay it on the floor and <clears throat> you put the bottoms of your feet together with your knees open. In yoga, they call it the rest position or, or frog position, something like that. So you do that. You just lay like that for about a minute so that the adductors passively stretch. 
So the knees are just falling open and the adductors are getting a passive stretch. I don't do anything or very little actually cognitively. I'm just working the body anatomically. So once you lay there for a minute, let those adductors stretch, then the next thing you do is you keep the knees open and you pick the pelvis up. Now for sports people, you'd pick it all the way up to your shoulders. So you're on your shoulders, you've got a big arch in your back. So your pelvis is up in the air, your knees are wide open. So we and your feet are in the we, same position as you just suggested, feet are still touching. Your feet are tilted, still together. They give you sort of the grounding you need to hold the position. Knees open, pelvis up, and you hold that. And within 30 seconds, your pelvis is going to start to bounce or rock back and forth. And so what it means is you're destabilizing that tight holding pattern, which is what we're trying to do. You're just doing it anatomically. Then you set your pelvis back down on the floor. Then the only thing you have to do is close your knees incrementally, just one inch, just one little bit of movement. So now your knees are still open, but they're not passively laying open. You put a little bit of a stressor in there. So you close them one inch about every minute or minute and a half because each body is different. And so you're slowly going to be closing your knees and you will actually not only activate the tremor mechanism, but actually increase it, increase its intensity because you're closing your knees slowly. And as the intensity increases by its own anatomical, physiological design, it will start to move from the adductors into the psoas muscle. And then it will start its journey up your spine. You're anatomically designed to do it. And what's really interesting, Russ, it's so simple. And I think it's so simple because of the genetic encoding that we should be able to access our body's capacity to reduce the stress in a very simple way. Do you so ever, do people simple. cry when they do it sometimes? Well, that depends. Some people will cry, some people will laugh. Some people will go into fear. It depends on what is being held in the tissue that's now in the process of being released. Some people will cry with pleasure saying, oh my God, I haven't felt this kind of release tightness in my lower back for years. Some people will cry because of the sadness that they've been sexually abused or some people might get frightened. The emotion is directly associated to the tension pattern that's starting to release. And so with all of us, there could be painful emotions and pleasurable emotions that release as well. These area, this area of the body, the psoas muscles, like, you know, sort of the, around the groin, around the reproductive organs, sort of up here through the hips, this area of the psoas. I have like real, I, I'm yogically and sort of physiologically, I'm quite open there. Like I can sit in lotus position. My knees will go mm -hmm. to the floor if my feet are together. But like, um, I don't like being t touched there. You know, even sometimes if an uh, mm -hmm. animal, I've got loads of animals, if walks across me there, like I have a sort of really violent kind of, hey! kind of like sort of spasm response yeah. if I'm sort of touched there or prodded there. And, so it's, and, and also behind the knees and stuff, it's clear to me that there are places in my body that where my nervous response is acute. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's actually true for a lot of people. And I'm glad you said this. It's interesting. I work with a lot of people who've done yoga and other sorts of body modalities. And you're right. Your knees might be able to stretch all the way to the floor in a relaxed state. But that doesn't mean that someplace, so you've trained your legs to do that in a sense. You train your body to stretch and pull 
I tell yoga people they can bend over and almost kiss their ass. They're so flexible. Um, and yet, many times they're not in the body. So it's one thing to actually move the structure itself. Sports people do this. They train it a great deal. But that doesn't mean they're actually inhabiting the structure. And that's a different thing because I think that has to do a lot with the nervous system. And the nervous system is what's causing that reaction. And mm. so the tremor mechanism uses the, it is part of the nervous system, actually. It's part of the parasympathetic nervous system. And so it interacts with the muscles. And so together, they're sort of pulsating you both into a state of, of relaxation physically, but also neurologically. It's a calming down so that you could get rid of that. I believe that anyways, you could get rid of that reaction because it's such a high uh, stimulation of the nervous system. Well, let's just calm down the nervous system and that'll go away. David, if this is an innate ability, almost like a piece of forgotten wisdom, do you not feel that that position is sort of unusual like it would be unusual to see that in nature for a, for a, for a, an anthropoid ape to lay on its back and to open itself up like what about in higher primates what tremoring is there in them it, the same tremoring occurs but they don't need to put their body in a posture or position to do it i only did it for the human species because um it's sort of like when a dog lays over and opens its legs so you rub its bellies. It's yeah. vulnerable. See, and so what we did, or the state that we live in constantly, is a more protected state where we actually do contract. We live with a contracted psoas muscle most of the day, actually. And so it's pulling constantly, pulling us forward. So even in a chair, we end up doing this when we're tired and we're doing it to pull this out. It's an automatic response. We know how to move our diaphragm and our chest cavity. Because I'm starting with people who are in such a state of tightness, I exaggerate the extension. And that's what helps activate the tremor mechanism more easily to help them access it and then come out of it. If you do it like five or six times, you often never even have to do that posture again. You could just lay on the floor and the tremor mechanism would automatically induce itself. I understand. It's that's not how you imagine, you know, twenty thousand years ago on the plains or in the copses. That's how human beings would have done it. But it wouldn't have been necessary because we weren't at that point of inculcation and uh, and conditioning. We hadn't been conditioned to lose contact with these yeah. natural mechanisms. What do you th What do you think about, um, like you know, yeah, ecstatic states, orgasm? Uh, like whirling dervishes, banshees, ecstatic dance, and, and that kind of area. What do you think's going on there? About like about transcendence almost, and the sort of and the sort of potential spiritual dimension, as understood through orgasm, or at least postulated or posited rather through orgasm, and you know through those other kind of sort of dance and movement transcendental methods. Yeah, I'm actually convinced that these what you call ecstatic experiences um, um, that come from multiple religious or spiritual practices. And even like you said, even from sex, you, a lot of people, when, they, when the sexual stimulation gets high enough, the body begins to tremor with excitement. That's an excited nervous system. That's a big charge. And it can be extremely pleasurable charge. 
And you could even have ecstatic experiences of union with somebody or communion with somebody. If both of you have this amazing sexual experience, it's those moments when you say it feels like we were one. We weren't even separate individuals. Somehow we could feel each other so deeply. It was almost like the boundary between us just vanished and we became one. Well, if that's possible, and it's possible all over the world in all cultures and countries and religious traditions, then that must be, it must be the nature of the human organism or the human person to experience that. And whether you experience it through a spiritual tradition or a religious practice or through sexual ecstasy, what is that doing for us? How does it help me feel fall more in love with me and therefore fall more in love with you and with humanity. Do those experiences actually help us feel instead of separate, we're connected, we are one human species. We're not individual human species, we're one. And those ecstatic moments like that actually get us to feel the truth of that and then harmony occurs from that. We get to live in peace with one another. Yes, in a sense, there is an obvious correlative between these sort of uh, locked egoic systems of domination of your own nature, of the own of your own fluid nature, and a kind of a system of interlocking, locked off, egocentric, dominator cultures that, if they were released, could create a different kind of well, like the fluidity and oneness are almost synonymous. You can see that, that you know that those terms are. Yeah interchangeable to a point yes yes okay i like that um now do you believe in god may i ask pardon do you believe in in god that's a loaded question (laughs) no and i'll tell you why because i believe in this tremor mechanism and if i give a personal opinion about my god People who don't agree with my belief system will say, well, the tremor mechanism isn't for them. So I will say that the tremor mechanism is pure neurophysiology. It's in every human being and it's for everyone, despite what their belief systems are. Now, having said that, what I believe is that there is some sort of consciousness. There's something larger than us that we are not only capable of accessing, but I believe designed to access. Now, whether you call that God or not doesn't matter to me, but every human being does have an experience or can have an experience of being connected to the other. If that's either just one person, their partner, spouse, or a close friend or whatever, there, there is a moment in relationship where we say the division between us is dissolved. Somehow I feel deeply connected to you. So if every human being can do that, some human beings expand that to say, I believe that happens at a cosmic level or universal level as well. And then they would call that God or um, whatever. Managing, directing and uh, prescribing that impulse and its connotations is one of the most powerful tools in organizing a society, i.e. if people dissolve their ba- the boundary between their self and America, they're a, a patriot or... <laughs> you know, between themselves and their dog, they're a dog lover or themselves in a pair of shoes, they're a fashionista. I heard a sort right. of a, an, an etymological um, analysis of the word love across languages and 
the conclusion that I read was that it's most commonly could be understood as to be union, union. I feel at one with this thing. I feel mm -hmm. at one with this thing. Yes, yes. When I've done there's some stuff paradox, with... Just real quick, Russell, there's a paradox in that. I believe that this union that you're calling, this connection with others, it has its balance where I do that by finding me as well. So people who are becoming fashionistas or whatever, they're struggling to find who they are. And if they do that, then that helps expansion. Our problem is we get caught in one or the other. We either want to stay in an expanded state and love the world all the time, or we want to identify with myself individual from the rest of the world. And those two polarities, we're supposed to bounce gently back and forth between us between them and fluidly live both of those extremes. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Um, the comedian Bill Hicks said, one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively, very beautifully. Um, I, When I spoke to Michael Singer, who wrote Untethered <laughs> Soul on this podcast, I once spoke to him about, I spoke to him about addiction and pornography as well. And he said, like that, with pornography, it's an attempt at channeling, he said. He said that, like, that what you're trying to do is channel energy. You're tr like, it's a, the thing that you're attempting to do is kind of, in a sense, a rather natural and noble thing, even aside from carnality and erotica. Like, beyond those methods and vehicles for the experience, the experience of sort of openness and oneness. And, you know, the, sort of the type of recovery that I believe in. Um, you know, for recovery from drugs and alcohol, uh, posits that at the root of the condition of addiction is an appetite for s spiritual connection. It's a sort of a spiritual condition that you, the addict requires God so powerfully, requires oneness that material life will just will not do. <laughs> that like it doesn't. That there aren't enough shoes, there isn't enough sex, there isn't enough drugs, there aren't enough relationships or power or money or fame or anything. In the end, you have to find a a, a, a route beyond it. You have to find a pathway. And I, I feel that, um, you know, like recent studies into sort of psilocybin, for example, being used as an antidepressant suggested that psilocybin in conjunction with different forms of therapy would be more successful. I feel that a kind of an exploration into these modalities is absolutely vital. Also, I have friends with um, Wim Hof, and I know that some of the work that he does with cold is about sort of accessing the autoimmune system in a different way. You know, and it right. feels like you're like you're investigating different different routes to this place. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I love Wim Hof. He did exactly the same thing. He's looking at what is the natural access route into the human organism. How can we access it more naturally um, without uh, substances? Although I'm I'm not opposed to them at all because we're now discovering how useful psilocybin is actually. So. What we're looking for, and I think this goes back to your um, your previous statement, we are looking to live with passion. Being on this planet, in this organism, has encoded in it a passion for life that's expansive. We know we can do it. And the horrible frustration of not getting there, I think, finds different avenues, some of them damaging, some of them useful. but 
Yeah, I think it's the same thing in all of us. We know we want to be alive with passion and enjoy it. I want to enjoy my body and I want to enjoy the bodies of humanity. I want to enjoy plants and animals. I want to enjoy being on this planet for the time that I'm here with the greatest amount of passion that I could have. And I think that's a driving force in every human being. That's interesting, isn't it? Because many of the models for enlightenment are sort of anti-hedonic, are sort of ascetic and about the denial of the body. I suppose this must be a recognition of the power of appetite, even sort of pre-modern pagan ideas often have a figure such as the trickster in Native American cultures, hair, raven, or trickster, however trickster occurs in various African ideologies, as essentially the vehicle for appetite and the ambivalence of appetite, of carnality, that carnality and appetite, which is something I suffer from, you know, can be directed at anything, and more sex, more sex, more food, more food, more sex, you know, and like that, that this is a challenging negotiation, particularly, I suppose, if you are traumatized and don't know how to harness or direct these powers mm, yeah yeah i think what again there's a little bit of a misconception when i live my life very passionately and very live and excited there are times when i deliberately go into solitude i fast myself i actually deny myself things that i had when i had these passionate experiences but again that seems to be some sort of organic balance in me i live life with passion and excitement and enthusiasm and lots of stimulation, and then I've got to go away. I have to be in solitude and silence, and I have to fast, because it somehow balances it. I found this out the hard way, too. I came back from a country that I was living in at war, and I remember when I came back, I went through therapy for about a year, and I did really well, but I was still so overstimulated that I went and I lived in a hermitage for six months. And what fascinated me was it took me three months before I could even calm down my brain. That's how long it took just to calm down my brain. And then the last three months that I had, I was able to one more time live inside of me. But this was living in a hermitage. I was living very stark existence, almost no input from outside, no sound, nothing. I was living in the mountains by myself. That's what I needed to balance the intensity of the stimulation I had from living in war. Without that, I don't believe I would ever have recovered. Mm. Why do you keep... Who's your travel agent? Why are you always in some war-torn nation? <laughs> You're not heard of Hawaii? It sounds, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds terrible, but I actually like working with large populations because this method gives me the opportunity to do that. So when I go to, like, when I went to Japan, we were working with tsunami survivors there. We had like 350 people in the room or something. And we're all tremoring together. And people are laughing. People are crying. They're holding hands because we all knew the same trauma. We knew what it was like. And everybody was in their recovery together. So they're all tremoring on the floor. And sure enough, an earthquake happened, a very minor one. And it was really comical because somebody just said in Japanese, the earth is shaking with us. And it rewrote the paradigm of the earth shaking being disastrous and damaging. They were shaking like the earth was. 
And so then they made this beautiful connection. Those kind of stories and experiences are like gems in my life. And so, yes, I'll travel to any war zone or natural disaster there because you're going to find some excitement about life. It, even though it's in tragedy, something of life is going to poke its head out at you. And you're going to say, wow, I could never have had this experience otherwise. You're lovely. And the idea that these dormant... Um, these dormant systems can be activated in order to provide catharsis for held stress that might, you know, it's not difficult to envisage cancer as a kind of frozen, trapped, uh, curtailed energy or other forms of body bodily dysfunction. I feel increasingly that psychotherapeutic techniques can no longer remain entirely cerebral because I think that is the dominion of the problem. And like by engaging and involving the body, given that there are the taxonomies that separate body and mind are arbitrary and a result of sensory impediment rather than any actual true separation. I feel like these kind of techniques are the future. Well, I think you're right. If we look at the history of the development of psychotherapy, we're basically starting from Freud. So what Freud did was he, he took us out of that area where we were living, where everything was in the body. Everything was about the body. And then Freud said, oh, wait, there's a way that we think that we also control our body. But in that evolutionary movement, we moved everything up to the brain. We got stuck in psychotherapy and basically divorced ourselves by saying we threw the baby out with the bathwater. We always do it. And so we threw the body away and said, oh, that's, that's old stuff. That's not real. It's in our brain. And now we're coming full cycle again to the statement you just made. Yes, just doing psychotherapy is not 100% going to be able to address the entire organism of the human person. We must look at what are the significant mechanisms in the body itself that interacts with the psyche of the person. And like I told you, I need to get around your ego and around your consciousness because I have to go around that because that will impede me from having access to your organism. You, you understand yeah. that? Yeah, That's yes, why I just I had to have you do exercise. And, and then, then what I could do, I could get your ego to actually say, wow, this was pleasure. This felt kind of good. And I didn't have to tell your ego it felt good. I gave your ego the experience that it felt good. It's great. Thank you. Thanks. I really enjoyed the conversation leading up to it. I enjoyed learning how you arrived at these conclusions. And I'm really grateful that we've had these experience, uh, the opportunity to have this experience this conversation together and the subsequent experience. I'm really interested in investigating it further with you, David. Thank you so much for coming on Under the Skin. Is there something, like, you know that I do top and tail this show, and, uh, yeah, you created it. You created tension and trauma-releasing exercises. That's what you did. You have yeah. done that now. Yeah. But you know what it was from, Russell? This is what's most important to me. It was just from observing the human condition. I... In war, I had it thrown into my face because everybody, including you, knows that when people get nervous, they tremor. We see that all the time on TV or whatever. But when it was thrown in my face, my face so intensely is what made me pay more attention to it. What did you do before you conceived this? I'm a clinical therapist. 
So I was doing therapy. It was a complete failure when I moved uh, to Sudan, Yemen, Lebanon, Egypt. It didn't work there. Those cultures didn't understand Western psychotherapy. Hmm. <laughs> so this my paradigm very... was broken. Ah. And from the trauma came and growth. The... Yes. I had to see in a new way. That's a perfect example. Thank you for saying it. David, thank you. You lovely, kind, warm, brilliant man. <laughs> thank you so much, Russell. Hey, have you listened to, <laughs> did you enjoy that with David Pacelli? Yeah. Did you? He's very friendly. He's nice and he's lovely. You're a person who needs a bit of trauma shook out uh, your body maybe, with some tremble travels. You're, you're a living trauma, Jen. <laughs> certainly a trauma for me. Now, listen to my audible original revelation. Also, listen to Above the Noise and meditate. Furthermore, sign up for russellbrand.com mailing list. In the meantime, <laughs> if you like this episode, why not? Hold on, Jim. <laughs> You're going to like this. Uh, am I? Yeah. If you like this episode with David, why not check out some other episodes with Blind Boy? Remember he talks about anxiety and getting rid of it and epigenetics and the famine and how we have inherited trauma and Jenny, his techniques. There's no place for Irish nationalism. <laughs> he did a lot on it, didn't he? You're right, it's good. All right, and also Bruce Lipton. Yeah, healing yourself. Jen, these are good choices. Okay, good. Jen, for the this is a new experience. <laughs> Nick Hayes is good. What's that got to do with this? <laughs> Why are you bringing that up again, Jen? I wanted to, a group of friends, writer friends, to walk around with. You can hang around with Blind Boy and Bruce Lipton. <laughs> they are not going to go on walks. Blind Boy's got that bag on his face. Bruce Lipton, he's basically a wizard. Yeah. I want to go with those others. They'll go for a walk with you. Didn't Rupert invite you on a walk to a church? Which one's Rupert? Oh, yeah, yeah, Sheldrake. That's yeah. a good episode. Did you go on the walk? No. Well. So what do you mean? Did you, was that a trick? Did you ask that question <laughs> knowing the answer? Because if, if you did, that's a trick. Don't gaslight me, I Jen. wasn't sure. You gaslit me there. No. That was a gaslight. No, because I didn't invalidate your feelings. Didn't you? No, I didn't call you crazy. Did you? No. <laughs> you mustn't invalidate your feelings. I didn't. That's what gaslighting is, though, is it? Gas, don't invalidate you feelings. Go, you, uh, you're crazy. What? You're doing all these things. You're that like, gaslight's crazy. been switched off. Yeah. It's from the film Gaslighting, isn't it? Yeah. That's where the phrase comes from. You're crazy. The gaslight switched off. Yeah. Hmm. I did. Yeah, yeah. All right, thank you. You've done some good work here. <laughs> now, that's a form of... It's not, that's not gaslighting. That's just straight up lying. <laughs> now, keep checking my YouTube channel for daily videos and thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary. <clears throat> Don't cough over the bit when I'm saying goodbye, Jen. <laughs> It's okay, it can mute my track. Oh, no, don't mute it. Leave it on. Let the world know. Let them know, Jen. Let them know about your larynx. Thank Ugh. you. Too late. For listening. Oh, Jenny. To under the skin goodbye. Thank you. For listening. To under the skin with Russell Friends.